Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Obviously, we're continuing here in our study in the book of Romans, the 12th chapter, and we're considering what it means to live our lives in view of God's great mercies to us in Christ. And we've been considering specifically how to live together in the body of Christ. How do we all get along in the church? When you come to Romans chapter 12, the theology becomes immensely practical. Now, theology is always practical, but it has to be applied into our lives. And we come to Romans 12, it's really where the rubber meets the road, as it were. And this is what God requires for us as believers. All right, so I'll just give you a little heads up. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. It's going to require that maybe we make some changes in our life. It's, tre- it's a tremendous portion of Scripture, okay? But it may be convicting. I have had people come and tell me the last few weeks how convicting it has been. And that's good, uh, but we need to act on that conviction, right? Not just feel bad, but change things in our lives. Now, again, you come to chapter 12. That's the uh, after the first 11 chapters of theological truth, doctrine that Paul has laid down, and then you come to the practical application of everything that's been learned. And one of the main issues that we're dealing with presently is the issue of love. I cannot overestimate or, uh, how important this issue is. Loving everybody, loving each other in the body of Christ practically and tangibly. It has been pointed out that when sin entered the world, uh, the immediate effect was that it had a damage on relationships. Adam and Eve were instantly separated from God, and those Uh, whose fellowship they had previously enjoyed. And now guilt prompts that man and woman, the first man and the woman, to try to hide themselves from God. Immediately the couple becomes estranged from each other. Uh, Before sin entered, they were naked and unashamed in each other's presence. But after they sinned, they sewed fig leaves for uh, together, not for the other person, but for themselves, in order to try to hide their shame from the other. Uh, Sin damages relationships. Uh, But it's Christ who reconciles all relationships. Uh, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's the love of Christ for a fallen world made up of men and women like you and me that allows us to be reconciled to God. Christ stands in our place. He bears our uh, sin. He, he takes our wrath. In order to transform and change our lives, to reconcile us to the Father, therefore giving us opportunities to be reconciled to other men. Right? You have to be reconciled to the Father before you can be reconciled to other men, and then to love them as Christ has loved us. So, in a fallen world with fallen flesh, our unredeemed humanity, uh, our flesh wants us to love us. That's what our flesh wants. So, a Christian is in a constant battle with his flesh, a battle with indwelling sin, a battle to dethrone self and enthrone Christ. And, and it's a battle. It doesn't come easy for any of us. But that's what God's called us to do in Christ. And that's what the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us gives us the power to achieve. To love others in the manner that Christ has loved us. And the love of others is really a major test of genuine Christianity. Uh, Paul, uh, in, or I mean John, in uh, 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, that one who loves God should love his brother also. 
1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So love really is the litmus test. It's the proof of the genuineness of our profession of faith in Christ. Now, as we've seen so far in our, in our study here, uh, there are certain obligations and responsibilities based upon all that God has done for us through Christ that we are to carry out. Our relationship with Christ has not only saved us from the penalty of sin and past, present, uh, future, uh, but that salvation that we enjoy in Christ has present ongoing implications in our daily lives. And we're part of God's great redeemed body. We're part of the church. Individually, members of a great number of men and women who've moved from, from death to life because of, uh, of God's grace and, and God's mercy. And, and we're all united together as forgiven sinners. Uh, and God has chosen us to unite us together. And God has chosen us to unite us together in this body to be a visible manifestation of his presence in the world. Uh, therefore, the person who's truly saved will evidence that salvation by the way they live their life. Again, you know, a lot of people make profession of faith in Christ, but there's no evidence of transformation and change. So the person who is truly saved will evidence salvation by the way he lives. And again, the kind of life that God is calling to the believer to live is really a supernatural life, and it's a life that the unredeemed person, the unregenerate man, can't live. The kind of life that God is calling to us to live is empowered by the person of the Holy Spirit, and as we yield ourselves to him, as we follow him, as we're continually filled or controlled by the person of the Holy Spirit, he directs and empowers us to live a godly Christ-like lives in, in this perverse world in which we find ourselves. So uh, the kind of life that we're being called to live because of the mercies of God is a supernatural life. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything mystical about it, uh, uh, but there's nothing left to subjectivism. There's nothing left to the, the whims of emotionalism. Uh, the kind of life that God is calling us to live in the body of Christ, listen, doesn't even depend on how we feel about it. The kind of life that God is calling us to live in the body of Christ does not depend on how we feel about it. But it's altogether the result of the practical obedience to God's commands, and again, in light of or in view of God's great mercies towards us. Too many people wait until they feel like doing whatever God commands them to do. My encouragement to you and to me also is to do what God commands us to do and let the feelings follow. Be obedient to the Word of God, not to your feelings. Feelings cannot be trusted. The Word of God can be. Now, in Christ, we're no longer slaves of sin, but now we're slaves of righteousness, right? We've been equipped by God to respond in faithful obedience to His Word and to live the kind of life that He's commanded. And in Christ, we've been born again with a, a new nature, a nature like, like God's, and therefore that nature must love because God is love. And the Christian is like his God, therefore the Christian must also love. And again, God has made provision for us uh, to do that very thing by bringing us into the assembly of believers, the church, and giving us the opportunities to exercise our new nature towards each other. And Paul says uh, to the believers and to us, but to the believers in Rome, uh, first, or, uh, chapter 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy, bore what is evil, cling to what is good. So again, for love for the Christian to be sincere, genuine, or the love of a Christian is to be genuine, sincere, not fake, it's not putting on a mask, right? That's what the, the word hypocrisy is, play acting. Um, but but it's, it's a love from the heart. Which means what? You have to have your heart transformed. 
right? It, it, it's not something you work up, right? Do you understand? That's the supernatural part of this thing. It's not us working it up, but it's a supernatural transformation from the inside out. And the love that God is calling to us to is an unselfish, self-giving, self-denying, self-sacrificing devotion to others. Paying whatever we need to on a personal level, paying the personal price that is necessary so the needs of others might be met. Now, I can say that, but us putting that into practice is the difficult part, and that's what we're commanded to do. Paying whatever personal price is necessary so the needs of others might be met. And again, that, it's that kind of love that's to be at the center of the very, uh, the, the very center of our relationship together in, in, as Christians, uh, a love that is others-oriented. Now again, this kind of love was absolutely unheard of in Paul's day in pagan Rome. Uh, it's the kind of love that would have been ridiculed, it would have been seen as a sign of uh, weakness. But, but the New Testament elevates this kind of love as the supreme virtue of a genuine believer. 1 Corinthians uh, 13.1 If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and know all knowledge, if I have the all faith so as to move mountains but do, have, do not have love, I want nothing. Right? So this kind of love that God is calling, to, uh, calling us to in the body of Christ and the church collectively is countercultural. It's foreign to the culture. It's foreign to how everybody else in the culture treats each other. Again, it's a willing, obedient kind of love that will draw attention to yourselves. Therefore, it will give you an opportunity to draw attention to whom? Christ. Right? Again, this love's countercultural. When we start loving like this, people will take notice. And when they take notice, then we can point to the person of Christ. That's the idea. Now, not only loving like this draws attention of the unbelieving world, uh, uh, but so would be hating what is evil, because everybody in the world loves evil. So we love as God has commanded us to love, but we hate what is evil. Uh, That speaks of purity of life. Let love be without hypocrisy. Then he says, abhor what is evil. So again, the believer, the genuine believer who's united with the person of Jesus Christ is going to love like Christ loves. The believer who's united with Christ is going to hate what Christ hates. Christ hates all that is evil, therefore so should the Christian. He hates and despises and rejects all that's evil, because evil is the very opposite of who God is and God in His holiness. Evil is the enemy of God, uh, the enemy of love. Therefore, the Christian has absolutely nothing to do with it. Lest his love for Christ and love for God be nothing more than a hypocritical love, nothing more than a pretend love, nothing more than a Judas kiss, Right? Does that make sense? We've got to hate what is evil. And I have no part of it. Right? Let love be without hypocrisy, bore what is evil, and then we're called to cling to what is good. So the Christian holds on to what is good and never lets go. He glues himself to the good. He refuses to be separated from it. And that which is the greatest good is not a thing, but it is a person. It's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Christian glues himself to Christ. He refuses to be separated from Christ. He loves Christ. He adores Christ. He worships Christ. He's passionately consumed by the person of Jesus Christ. Now, as we go on here in, in the text, we look at verses 10 through 13. Paul's going to expand these, this uh, uh, verse 9 here. He's going to expand the idea of love. He's going to show how it operates in a variety. I think there's 10 different areas 
uh, how it works itself out in the body of Christ. So verses 10 through 13 really is love in action. First, he says, verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It speaks of loyalty in the body. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now, you remember, I hope a week or so ago, I can't remember what it was, but I said there are four Greek words in the, in, in the New Testament. Uh, there are four Greek words, or four words in the Greek language for love. Agape, phile, uh, storge, and eros. Eros is never used in the New Testament. And we spent a couple weeks ago, we looked a lot at uh, agape and what that looks like. But here in verse 10, he's going to use two other words uh, in the New Testament, uh, Greek for love. Phile and storge. The word devoted, right? Be devoted. Phyllis storgos. It's a compound of phyllis, which means friend or friendly, friendship love, and then storge, which means natural or family love. So phyllis storgos really means a mutual love that parents and children and wives and husbands enjoy, the kind of love that's enjoyed in familial family uh, relationships. So in the words brotherly love in the English uh, we get our Greek, uh, the, the Greek word for, into the English brotherly is Philadelphia, right? Philadelphia, it's a, again a compound word, philo, uh, meaning to have tender affection, and dolphus, meaning with a brother. So Philadelphia is the kind of brotherly love, the love that the brother has, a brother, love that a brother and a sister have, right? This kind of brotherly, familial love again. So when Paul says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, he's saying that the body of Christ, we're to have the same love for each other that we would have as for members of our own families. One commentator says this, the early Christians understood our understanding of love that it was, was that it was an extended family whose members bound together in intimate fellowship. It reflected and exhibited towards one another a heartfelt, consistent concern, right? Brotherly love. Uh, another one says, um, there should be a tender, intimate affection in the church as there is between the members of the same family. So that's the kind of love that God is calling to. That's kind of the, the, the brotherly uh, affection, to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's how it should work out in, in the church, the body of Christ. Each member should be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And that uh, means that each of us should treat each other as if we're actually in the same physical family. We're actually part of the same natural family. That, that's the kind of devotion that God is requiring. And the reality is that in Christ we are actually all together now what? Part of a new family, right, aren't we? Part of a new family with a new father, the same father, the one who's in heaven, right? The same father who's over all of us. We brought into the family of God, uh, taken out of the world, adopted into God's family. So, so we are in God's family, the church. We are called by God himself to respond to each other in brotherly love regardless regardless of what, regardless of background, education, occupation, or, listen to this one, even if we actually like the other person or not. The command is to treat each other with this brotherly love, this brotherly kindness. Even if you don't like that person. Because the command is to do what? To be obedient. Let your heart follow your obedience. And then pray that your heart would be changed and you would actually like that person for whom God and through Christ has given his life for that sits next to you in the pew. Right? That's what he's saying. 1 John 2 and 9, the one who says that he is in the light yet hates his brother is in the darkness. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 
But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Again, you can say whatever you want. You can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself. But a true Christian loves his brother in Christ. A true Christian loves his brother in Christ. And again, the kind of brother love that God is calling his people to in the body of Christ, again, completely foreign to Paul's day. That in spite of the diverse backgrounds, the, the individuals of the church came, they loved each other like family. And, and that really shocked and amazed the pagan world. And, and just like in our day, in our culture, many men's love has grown what? Cold. There's not a whole lot of love going on out there. And, and the church is to be countercultural. The church is not to look like the world, live like the world. The church is not to love like the world. But the church is to love the way God commands. And to love in brotherly love. To be completely devoted to each other in the body of Christ. John thirteen thirty four. We went through this and we went through that passage. A new commandment I give you, that you should love one another, even as I have loved you. And you may also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So it's love that's the true test it's of fidelity, the true test of genuineness. It's the true test that binds or bonds the Christian to each other. We can't, uh, I can't stress this enough. It's love. Donald Gray Barnhouse, Barnhouse says this. He says, The true church of Jesus Christ is to be a community in which each member finds occasion to develop his own personality by becoming interested in the other members. The bond that binds them, uh, binds them can be described as nothing less than a true love that exhibits that exists between God and uh, between good brothers. The tie that binds the hearts of the true believer is indeed a blessing, a blessed thing. Those who are truly alive in Christ know what it means to meet other believers who have the same redemptive life. For Christian fellowship is not based on the amount of creedal knowledge that various uh, people have in their heads, but in the ongoing life of the Christian that they have in their hearts. Christian fellowship is not a matter of light, but of life. It's the meeting of hearts made new in Jesus Christ. You know, you know that. You, you meet somebody you never met before, and all of a sudden you start thinking, I wonder if that person's a believer because of the way they're acting, because it seems like we have a commonality already. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I notice it here every once in a while. I most certainly notice it when I travel uh, internationally. I meet somebody who's a brother in Christ, and it's like, it's almost like we've known each other for a long time because we have the same Heavenly Father. Might not be able to speak the same language, but we have the same Heavenly Father and we have the same love for the Savior. Right? So be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Cultivate that kind of kindness in the life of the body. Be willing to bear one another's burdens. Be willing and do forgive the shortcomings and failures of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Extend to them the same kind of love that God has extended to you through Jesus Christ. Consider how to stimulate uh, one another to love and good deeds, to build each other up, to lift each other up, to encourage uh, each other in love. That's the command of the Scripture. And again, this is how the world's going to recognize that we're genuine, that we're really followers of Christ, because we love each other. Right? We're not strangers to each other in the building, but we genuinely have a sincere uh, care for each other. So if we want to have a, an impact on the, the world around us, and uh, with the same power that the early church had that shocked the pagan world. Stop and think about it. What did they have that we in this modern world would say would be to their advantage to get the message out? Well, they certainly didn't have this stupid thing or this stupid thing. Right? 
They didn't have the live stream. They, they didn't have any means of mass communication. But from faith to faith, life to life, they demonstrated the fact that they loved each other and they loved the Savior. And they turned the whole world upside down. Right? One little pocket, one little person, one person to another person, one, one uh, uh, person at a time. The world recognized there's something different about these guys. And they had that divine power that, again, shocked the pagan world. And that's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to live in the body of Christ, like we're family, being devoted to one another in brotherly love. I sometimes think, I, I, I'll say this, I honestly believe this fellowship, and I'm not just saying this, honestly believe this fellowship genuinely loves each other, probably unlike any other fellowship I've been a part of. And, and that's to Christ's credit, not yours or mine. That's to Christ's credit. He's changed our hearts. But in the church in general, I think there's a great emphasis, maybe too much so, not that we don't downplay doctrinal truth, we do, but knowledge is emphasized more than the relationship and the love that we're supposed to have for each other. And, and, and again, you can't not get rid of one and have the other. It's in both. Because if our head is full of truth, that means our heart has to be changed from the inside out, and it has to be seen in a practical way in the way we live our lives with each other in the body of Christ. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then he says this, give preference to one another in honor. Right? Give preference. Now, now the word preference or the word give preference is translated uh, uh, fr- uh, fr- from a Greek word that means to go before or show the way. Uh, go before and lead. And the word honor means to show genuine admiration and appreciation for so when he says give preference to one another in honor, what he means is that each of us is to lead the way or set the example of honoring or respecting each other. On a practical example, if you wanted that uh, uh, for the men, that would be when you approach the door with your wife, you do what? Giving preference to her, you do what? I'm sorry? Yeah, so I've seen a couple of you do that, and that's good, right? You should open the door for her. Right, you go to a restaurant, you're going to go sit in a chair, You know, maybe you help her get to her chair first before you're seated, right? Then you go sit down. That's giving a preference to her. That's honoring her. Give preference to one another in honor. Now, it's the same kind of uh, love, because it really speaks of uh, humility. It's the same kind of love or same kind of idea we found back in verse 3, where he says, Every man among you not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Or the same kind of idea that's found over in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. We talk about this all the time in marriage counseling. You want to have a relationship with each other that's Christ-like? You want to have peace in your home? Do nothing. Should we spend a few moments talking about what nothing means? Right? It's not that complicated. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. In, in, the, in the relationship in the family, if there's tension, it's because things are going this direction, not that direction. If there's tension in the family, it's because that person wants their quote-unquote rights and the other person wants their quote-unquote rights, and the flesh says you've got to serve yourself and seek yourself. The Savior came to seek and save uh, the lost, to serve the lost. The relationship is different. He did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, he emptied himself and took the form of a bond slave and took our place. 
That, that's how peace happens in the family. I told somebody this a few weeks back. Uh, uh, if you want peace in your home, then act like the Prince of Peace. Follow him. Now again, our flesh wants to elevate itself. Our flesh wants to rise up, elevate itself, but true love gives preferential treatment to others. True love in the body of Christ regards one and other more important than oneself. True love gets in front of the line and leads the way in acknowledging the accomplishments of others. True love is quick to show the genuine admiration and genuine appreciation for others. True love is not concerned about being recognized, but true love is concerned about other people being recognized and other people being honored. So if you're growing in grace and growing in Christ's likeness and growing with your uh, love for the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you're renewing your mind daily in, in the Word of God, and if you're viewing the world through the mercies of God in your own life, then you should be, giving, uh, you should be getting better at giving honor to one another because you should be looking more like Christ. So the question, obviously, is how you're doing. How are you doing in general with giving preference to one another? How are you doing in, in your home, with your wife, with your husband, with your children? Are they seeing the, you, that you genuinely appreciate them, genuinely admire them, that you're sensitive uh, to valuing them, uh, respecting them, giving them their honor that they deserve as a co-heir uh, of the mercies of God through Christ? How are we putting this into practice? So again, as living sacrifices, what we're called to do through the mercies of God in our own lives, we should be growing in our love and devotion to other people around us, growing in our brotherly love, leading the way to show honor. Again, especially in the home, that's where it starts. And then in the body of Christ, the fellowship of the church. Next, verse 11, Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence. Uh, that, that speaks of an urgency. Uh, a couple of, of your versions. The NIV says, never lacking in zeal. Uh, the ESV says, do not be slothful in zeal. Uh, the word diligence or, or zeal is a funny little word. A spude means with haste, earnestness, diligence, enthusiasm, wholeheartedness. Uh, give uh, all diligence one interest, uh, of one interest to uh, someone else with most earnestness. So again, not lagging behind a diligence could be translated in regard to whatever you do, don't be lazy. Right? Whatever you do in the body of Christ, don't be lazy. Get, be, do it with, with diligence. Uh, as, uh, anything we do in the body of Christ, we're really serving the Lord. Right? We do it with earnestness. We do it with diligence, enthusiasm, uh, with care. Uh, in, in the body of Christ, there's really no room for slothfulness. There's no room for laziness. Uh, uh, Solomon understood that. He said, Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it verily with all your might, for there's no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. That's the place of the dead. Uh, where you're going. So whatever you do, you do with all your might. You do it here on the earth because this is where you're at, right? This is the place that you have to serve God here in this planet, right? In this present life. Uh, Ephesians 5.15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time or making the best use of your time uh, because uh, the days are evil, it says in the authorized version. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Galatians 6.10, While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those who are in the household of faith. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It's the Lord's Christ whom you serve. So everything we do in the body of Christ, everything we do as Christians, should be done with the very best of our effort, with the very best of our ability, because whatever we do in the body of Christ, we're really not working for other men, we're actually working for Christ. Right? It's the Lord Jesus Christ whom we serve. 
So it can't be with slothfulness. It can't be with laziness. How in the world could we ever give him anything but our best? Right? How in the world could we ever give him anything but our best effort, our best uh, deed? And how in the world could we ever give each other in the body of Christ, those for whom he laid down his life, anything but our best? Right? That's, this, that's this idea. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Now, we do need to give diligence, or we need to give to God our, our very best, but l- look at the negative. Uh, we must not lag behind in diligence or in our zeal. The word lag or lagging has the idea of shrinking or hesitation. And, and I think the idea here is you need to understand there's a real tendency, listen, you know this, there's a real tendency in the Christian life to lose steam, so to speak to become complacent, to become lazy, to become idle, slothful. And again, Paul says you cannot do that. We can't do that. We are not to lag behind in our diligence. We are not to lag behind in our zeal because we have a lifelong responsibility to reverence God and to continually to present to Him our bodies as living sacrifices for His use so that we may do that which is good and pleasing and perfect in His sight. So it's a natural human tendency that we all have to be aware of, that we all have to fight against, contend against in the Christian life, against it's to cool down. Lose steam, cool down, whatever you want to, however you want to say it. But we have to fight against that. We have to determine in our minds not to lag behind in diligence. Next thing Paul says is we must be fervent in love. Fervent or uh, uh, fervor, I think the NIV says. That literally means to boil. And when we think of boil, we often think of heat. And sometimes we think heat is associated with anger, but that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about boiling over with anger. He's really talking about bubbling over, boiling over, bubbling over, having sufficient heat to produce some kind of results, to get divine work done, to be full of energy, to be fired up, to be on fire with zeal and enthusiasm. That's what he's saying. One commentator says it like this, it's a warning against settling into the comfortable, shallow ruts in our spiritual lives. The idea is that is the believers to continually, presently, as a habitual practice, be hot for the things of the Lord. Another commentator says this, the idea of zeal or diligence uh, goes as far as saying that the phrase fervent in spirit could be rendered set on fire by the spirit. Right? Be fervent in spirit, be set on fire by the spirit. This is Doug, Doug Moo. He says, while Paul might here be urging Christians to maintain a strong emotional commitment to the Lord in their own spirits, it is more likely that the Holy Spirit is in view. And Paul is exhorting us to allow the Holy Spirit to set us on fire, to open ourselves to the Spirit as, to seek, uh, as he seeks to excite us about the rational worship to which the Lord has called us to. He, he's saying, let the Lord set you on fire, right? It's rational and reasonable that we give our bodies as living Holy sacrifice back unto God. How do we do that? Or how often do we do that? Always. All throughout our Christian life. We never cool off. Let the Holy Spirit set us on fire. So the idea that Paul is speaking of the Holy Spirit here in verse 11 is shared by a couple different versions, perhaps older versions, at least one of them. The Revised Standard translated translated like this, being aglow with the Spirit. The Amplified Bible says aglow and burning with the Spirit. James Boyce comes on, uh, comes along and he offers a, an alternative view, but he kind of ends up in the same place. He says he's probably not referring to the Holy Spirit, but to a personality that radiates the presence of Jesus Christ. 
On the other hand, he says, this does not happen apart from the Holy Spirit. In a sense, the translation Holy Spirit is not wrong. Right? So what, what is it? How, do you, how are you set on fire? Is it by the person of the Holy Spirit or by knowing Christ and through the whole person of the Holy Spirit? And, and the answer is yes. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, uh, in the reference to the person of the Holy Spirit. He says, the man who has a glow in the Spirit is filled with the Holy Spirit so much that he radiates the presence of Jesus Christ. The man or the woman who's filled with the Holy Spirit is aglow with his presence. And like the ruler of Israel's, like the rulers of Israel, uh, people will recognize that they had been with Jesus. Remember in Acts uh, chapter 4, verse 13, it says, They have stirred uh, the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, but they were marveling and they began to recognize them having been with Jesus, right? If you're with Jesus Christ, your life's going to look different. Right? If you're under the control of the person of the Holy Spirit and you spend time with Christ, your life is going to look different than the, the unbelieving world around you. Barnhouse goes on and says, The glow of the Spirit is the warmth of the soul touched by the love of Christ. It cannot exist apart from the knowledge that we have been loved, that Christ has given himself for our sin, that we have been redeemed, and that the Holy Spirit has dwelt or dwells within our hearts. Such knowledge causes us to yield in full surrender to him as Lord of all. The Holy Spirit who dwells in all believers will glow through those who allow him to fill and direct their lives. That's a great statement. So the Christian who is fervent in spirit looks like they've been with Jesus. Christian is fervent in spirit. looks like they've been with Jesus because they have been in his presence. They've been in his presence and they've been touched by his love. His love in their life has made a difference. Therefore, the person, the Christian who's fervent in spirit, yields his life to full surrender to the Lord. Now, there's a, that, that principle of yielding your life could probably be pointed out in a lot of men of history, but I'm going to pick out one, a man named Henry Martin. Perhaps you're familiar with him, English missionary to India. Uh, the famous story of Henry Martin is uh, this. When he went to India, he went to a Hindu temple. When he arrived there, he saw something that horrified him in the Hindu temple. He saw a picture of Muhammad, and bowing down and worshiping Muhammad is the picture of Jesus Christ. So Christ was bowing down to Muhammad in the picture. Henry Martin wrote this in his diary. This picture excited more horror in me than I can well express. I was cut to the soul of the blasphemy. I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified, and it would be held to me if he were always to be thus dishonored. When he was asked why he felt that, he replied, If anyone plucks out your eyes, there's no saying why is there pain. It is feeling, and because I am one with Christ, I am so dreadfully wounded. That, that's a, a, a compelling statement, and one that probably deserves a little self-examination. And if we're that concerned uh, for the honor of Christ in a fallen world, as Henry Martin was. So moved by the reading of the journals of men like David Brainerd, uh, who was an American missionary to the North American Indians. 1806, Martin, at the age of 25, leaves his family, leaves his friends, and the, the woman, Lydia, who had uh, won his heart, he goes off uh, to India. He sails from India, he sheds many tears, thinking about the loved ones that he's leaving behind. And Martin writes this down in his diary. He says, The tears and the thoughts of the roaring seas which would soon be rolling between me and all that is dear to me on the earth. My feelings were that those of a man who should suddenly be told that every friend he had in the world was dead. And only by prayer for them that I should be comforted. And thus was indeed uh, a refreshment for my soul by meeting them at the throne of grace it seemed like I was again in their society. 
So he leaves everything, right? Goes off to India. 1806, he exclaims this, now let me burn out for God. Now, I probably didn't realize just exactly how fast that was going to happen, how fast his uh, burning zeal for God would take his life. He's going to die in six years. He's going to die at the age of 31. But in that time, those six years of ministry, Martin devotes his life to the Lord's work, and with an incredible determination and selfish dedication, he translates the New Testament into the common... He translates the New Testament and the common book of prayer into Hindustani. And in his own uh, work, through his own work, he establishes a number of schools. He faces, uh, pays for much of that himself. He faces much opposition. Uh, he he's, uh, never relents, however, in the threat of persecution and trials, and he preaches the gospel to the people. When he translates the New Testament and the Psalms, uh, then he translates the New Testament Psalms into Persian, and at uh, that time, nearly one quarter of the world read the Persian language. And, and Martin's New Testament translation uh, of, uh, into the Persian language is the first since the fifth century. So he leaves everything to follow Christ. He serves him. He reaches out to uh, Christ's elect in India and that they would come to the Savior. And he does this work for six years he preaches the gospel of salvation to men. He translates the word of God into the language that nearly one quarter of the people in the world could read and understand. That's a man who's fervent in spirit. And being fervent in spirit requires something. Not just good intentions, but it requires action. It requires resolve. It requires persistence, duty. And it requires not losing heart at doing good. Because how often are we tempted to quit when things don't go the way we want them to go? When things don't go easier the way that we planned it, we want to quit. But the man or the woman who's fervent in spirit keeps going in the face of opposition. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. Through the Towards the end of uh, the short life of uh, Martin, uh, he penned these words. He says, I cast all my care upon him who had already done wonders for me. I am sure that uh, I am, uh, and I'm sure that come what will, it shall be good. It shall be best. How sweet the privilege that we may lie as little children before him. I find, uh, I find that my wisdom is folly, my care useless, so that I try to live from day to day happy in his love and care. Again, 31, dies. Reached a quarter of the world with the gospel. A quarter of the world with the New Testament text. He gave these people who did not possess uh, the gospel, the New Testament, uh, uh, the, the Bible in their language. So they too could come to know the Savior whom he loved and to love the, the Savior who had loved him. He burned out for God because he was set on fire by the Holy Spirit. And the person who's set on fire by the Holy Spirit is a man who's been with Jesus, a man who's fervent in spirit all the way to the end. And that's what we're called to be. I don't know if God's calling you to be the modern-day Henry Martin, but I know he's all calling, calling us all to be fervent in spirit, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit. That's what we're called to. That's the level we're being drawn up to. 
And Paul says next that love works its way out uh, by, by way of action in the body of Christ. And he says, by serving the Lord. Again, verse 11, not lagging behind indulgence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And the word serving comes from the Greek word doulo, uh, which means to be a slave or to serve, a bond slave. Because the truth is a Christian no longer belongs to themselves. Christian has been bought with a price, right? If you're a Christian, you no longer belong to yourself. You've been bought with a Christ, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what God has done through that precious blood is he freed us from slavery to sin and death and has set us free to be a slave of righteousness, a slave to him, a slave of righteousness. And as slaves of God in Christ, we're completely controlled by him. Therefore, we have a duty to obey him, to do what he commands us to do, to be willing to surrender our life unto him in total, to be wholly devoted to him. And the apostle uh, Paul re- recognized that. He realized that. He realized that was his role now. He realized that ha- that's how he was to uh, present himself as someone who was saved, someone who is exclusively the slave of Christ. You, you see that in Paul's introductions, right? Uh, Romans 1 and 1, uh, Philippians 1 and 1, Titus 1 and 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He's really doulos, really a slave. Paul, a slave of Christ. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ. Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Titus 1 and 1. And you also see that in the other New Testament writers, the other apostles. James 1 and 1, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1 and 1, Simon Peter, a slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. These men understood their position before God, and they were willing servants of their master. And they followed Christ. And that's what we're to do. We're to willingly, presently, continuously follow Christ. Serve the Lord as our master. That's what it means for him to be Lord, right? By habitual practice of our life. So if Jesus Christ is Lord and we claim that, then that's what he deserves. He deserves our unfailing obedience. He loves our unfailing obedience, our love back to him, obediently always as the reasonable response to his mercies to us in our life. I remember one time in Luke chapter uh, 6, verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Again, we we need to de-Americanize our Christianity and start thinking biblically. He has exclusive rights over us to use us as he wills for his glory. And if we love him, then we're going to not see that as a problem. We're going to give that our lives back to him. We're going to willingly obey him. We're going to willingly serve him. Because we're like Christ. And we're going to live like Christ. We're going to serve like Christ. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if we're not lagging behind a diligence, if we're fervent in spirit, then it would make sense that we would be, next phrase, serving the Lord. And again, this service that the Lord requires from us, the power to do so doesn't come from us working it up, but it comes from Him. Uh, Colossians one twenty nine. For this purpose, Paul says, I also labor, striving, here it is, according to His power which works mightily in me. So we're called to obediently serve the Lord, but it's Christ's power through His Spirit that is at work in our lives that day by day gives us the supernatural energy to do what he commands us to do. Submission to the Lord, obedience, his indwelling 
presence, his power. Now, if you're going to live this kind of life in a world uh, that God calls us to live in the world around us, you're probably going to get some opposition at times. You're probably going to face some uh, disappointment and heartaches. Verse 12 is going to help us deal with these. Verse 12 says, as followers of Christ, excuse me, we are to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, and devoted to prayer. So what is it that sets the Christian distinctively apart from the non-Christian? The answer is we have hope. The secular mind, uh, the mind of the fallen, only believes what they see. If you're old enough in the room, you remember Dr. Carl Sagan. He's a famous astronomer. And his atheistic views of the universe really represents, I think, the secular mindset very well. Sagan is famous for this statement. He says, The cosmos is all there is, or ever was, or ever will be. Right? The cosmos is all there is, ever was, or ever will be. Now, unfortunately, Dr. Sagan died in 1996. Uh, He's come to see firsthand the error of that thinking. But Sagan's mindset is still pervasive in the culture. The culture only believes what they can see. Therefore, the culture has no hope. Because there's absolutely nothing in this present world system ruled by Satan himself that gives any kind of true hope to men. But we as Christians, on the other hand, we have hope. Romans 8.24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. The kind of hope that we have as Christians has no uncertainty to it. Uh, The English word hope has a little bit of uncertainty, but the New Testament word has no uncertainty. Uh, The kind of hope the New Testament speaks of and the kind of hope we have in Christ in the New Testament comes from the faithful promises of our God who cannot lie, in whom we place our trust. Our hope is in Him. So the hope that the Christian has is always has to do with what God has promised to do. What God is doing, what God has promised to do, but perhaps not yet occurred. Our hope is in Him. And specifically, our hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, we are looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our hope. First John 3.2, we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, right? We'll be just like He is. Our hope is in the person of Christ. So the Christian has his hope fixed on Christ. The hope has his hope fixed not on what he sees, but we have our hope fixed, anchored in the promises of God, although they may have not yet happened. But we're confident that they're going to, come to happen. They're going to happen. They're going to come to pass because everything God says is true. So the Christian who has hope always looks where? Up. They always look up. They look up. They look up to beyond what is merely natural. They look to what is supernatural. The Christian, again, looks up to hope in Christ, to hope in, in God. He looks forward expect, uh, expectantly uh, to the certain and sure eternity that we have with Him, right? with God, with Christ. Therefore, the Christian rejoices in hope. And the word rejoice means what you think it means. It means to be glad, to exuberant, cheerful. The Christian should always be joyful in hope, not downcast. How many Christians have you met that are just sour all the time? Always negative. It's not a good advertisement for the kingdom. Right? It's not a reality. The Christians should be rejoicing in hope. 
If the Christian is rejoicing in hope, it's because he loves as God loves. And 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says, love hopes all things. Love expects the best in others. Love believes in others. And so it's that attitude of hope, that, that attitude of encouragement. You know when you're around somebody who's got a positive outlook on life, that's good medicine to your own heart, right? Rejoicing in hope is contagious. And, and that's the call of the Christian, to rejoice in hope. And it's really part of the demonstration of the fact that the Spirit of God dwells within you. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Fruit of the Spirit is love. Ah, joy, there it is, right? But if there's no joy in your life, you better stop and do a gut check to see really if the Holy Spirit dwells within you. Love, joy, peace, patience, right? Goodness, gentleness, self-control, etc. and so on. And again, it's not something we just work up in ourselves, throughout our flesh, right? By our own efforts. It's the result, joy, in the heart of the believer who rejoices in hope is because of the indwelling work of the person of the Holy Spirit. So the Christian rejoices in hope. And then he says, he perseveres in tribulation or is patient in tribulation or um, patient in affliction. He perseveres. He remains. He doesn't run. Uh, he, He perseveres under the pressures, the misfortunes, the trials. He holds on to his faith in Christ. Uh, He bears up under ill treatment. And because the Christian rejoices in hope, he is confident that God's promises are true, that he awaits a day with his ultimate destination to share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be in his presence. Therefore, when affliction comes, when heartache comes, difficult times come, the Christian realizes he has an absolute assurance in the future. He realizes that no matter what happens to him in time in life, that his ultimate destiny has already been determined. Therefore, the Christian is able to patiently endure any kind of suffering. Again, knowing and believing that God himself is in control of all things. Knowing and believing that nothing comes into our lives lest it first passes through the hands of our loving Father. Therefore, we can patiently endure what comes our way. Knowing that God is going to resolve the problem for his glory and for our good. That's why Paul could confidently say, Romans 5, 2, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I mean, that's a tremendous statement. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. No matter what. Because we know the love of God has been poured out within our heart. We have a certain future. Our destination is taken care of. Again, nothing happens to us in time unless it comes through the hands of our loving Heavenly Father who has ordained it for His glory and our good. We exalt in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Again, this is not a Western mindset of thinking in the United States because we want everything on flowery beds of ease, right? We just want smooth sailing always. It's not a biblical view of the world. Biblical view of the world is look to Christ. Exalt in Christ. Look at him always. So when life brings us troubles and difficulties and disappointments, we are to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, then he says, devoted, in, devoted to prayer. 
Or some of the other translations say constant in prayer, faithful in prayer, steadfast in prayer. So when trouble comes, and it does in a fallen world, it's God allowing those things to come in our life to draw us to Him. Because when we're going through difficulties, when we're going through tough times, we tend to pray more. We, we tend to commune with God more. It shouldn't be that way, but reality is it's that way. right? We should be always praying without ceasing, but that's not always the, the reality of the matter. But when t- tough times come... Uh, tribulations, difficulties are either going to draw you further or push you away from God and Christ or it's going to draw you closer to God and Christ. And from God's standpoint, that's what he wants. He wants you as his father to come into his presence, right? To be devoted to prayer. Uh, It means that we stand strong towards something. We're steadfast, uh, unwavering. Uh, We are continually, habitually uh, making it a part of our lives. Again, not just in bad times, but in good times also. We're drawing close to God through Christ. Again, God, as our Father, loves us. He wants to have communion with us. And he communes to us, with us through our prayers. He, he delights in meeting the needs of his children, just like we delight in meeting the needs of our children, because he's a good father, a merciful father. So again, when hard times come in the face of opposition, uh, during realities in a fallen world of disappointment, Christians are to be rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, then devoted to prayer. Lastly, he says, verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, right? This is love in action. This is what it looks like. So love in action in the body of Christ takes on very practical applications. Love played out in the body of Christ looks very much kind of like the the love that Christ has displayed to us when he was here on the earth in the sense that it gives. And in the sense that Christ was more concerned about others than he was concerned about himself. He's more concerned about meeting the needs of others than with meeting his own needs. And that's the way it should be for us in the body of Christ as we follow him. So in the body of Christ, we should be contributing to the needs of the saints. The word contributing is a kononeo. It just means to come in communion or fellowship with, to become a sharer, to become a partner. So, so the idea is of sharing, a mutual sharing. Now we understand that. We see that in the New Testament, this koinoneo. Uh, it's evidence in early New Testament church. Believers after the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.42, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. There's that word, koinoneo. To breaking of bread and prayer, Acts 2.44. All those who had believed were together, had all things in common. Uh, verse uh, 32 of that chapter, the congregation of those uh, beloved were of one heart and soul, so that uh, no one claimed that anything belonged to them was his own, but... Uh, things were common property to them all, right? So in, in the world, we say, the world says what is mine is what? Mine. What is mine is mine. And, and as a Christian, we go, well, no, we really understand that everything belongs to God. Everything that we have in our life is really, uh, we're nothing more than stewards of God's possessions. Therefore, as good and faithful stewards of what all belongs to God and it all belongs to Him, we have a responsibility in the body of Christ to contribute to the needs of others, to do people good, our brothers and sisters in Christ contribute to the needs of the saints. So when somebody in the body of Christ falls into a need, oh, we must take it upon ourselves to meet that need to the best of our ability. It's interesting, in 1 John 3.17, uh, John asks a very penetrating question, especially, I think, of most of us in the United States as affluent Americans. 1 John 3.17 says, Whoever has this world goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
I cannot help but to think that we as Christians here in the United States are one day going to give an account for our affluent lifestyles and all the money we spend and our high-priced wants when so many of God's faithful servants live in impoverished conditions throughout the world, many struggling just to have their needs met. I just heard a story a couple days ago of a man who lives out in the middle of nowhere was going to go preach to a bunch of people who lived further out in the middle of nowhere, but one of the things he did before he went out to preach is he did have a little little uh, battery-powered um, amplification device, and he stopped, before he went out to preach, he stopped at the local dump to see if he could find a battery that still had some life in it. And then as the story goes, he preached to 1,500 men out in the middle of the forest. Whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brothers in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? We've got to de-Americanize our Christianity. Because we spend a lot of money on our high-priced wants, and there's a whole lot of people in the body of Christ that have needs that perhaps we can help us. It's a penetrating question. How does the love of God abide in him? Now, we might be able to meet the needs of others in the body of Christ by material goods, but I think you also meet, we also meet the needs of others in the body of Christ by, by sharing burdens of the heart. There's lots of people in the body of Christ that are lonely. Lots of people in the body of Christ that are hurting. Lots of people in the body of Christ that have loved a lost one in their mourning or in some other kind of trouble or sorrow. The basic idea, however, is being devoted to the needs of others um, uh, um, is that we should make whatever the needs of our brothers and sisters our own. We should make their needs our own. There should be a common ownership in them. Because again, God didn't save us to a life of independence. He saved us to a life of what? Interdependence in the body of Christ. And if one member of the body suffers, then the Bible says we all suffer. So we are to contribute to the needs of the saints. Then he says we're to practice hospitality. And practicing means literally to pursue the love of strangers. Uh, the, the idea of pursuing uh, or practicing hospitality, uh, hospitality is literally that you're running after a person. You're literally running after a person to show them hospitality. Philozenia. The love of strangers. Hospitality, it's a compound word. Philo, to love, and then xenia, stranger. Xenophobia is the fear of strangers. We're to practice the love of strangers. We're to look for ways to meet the needs of all whom God has sovereignly placed in our path, both believer and stranger, and we're to pursue those opportunities. We are to look for them. We are not to look past them or look the other way when God in his sovereignty brings these needs in our path. Now, in the time of the New Testament, uh, travel was difficult, travel was uh, uh, dangerous, ends were few and far in between, they were expensive, and they were often unsafe. So Christian families, Christian believers, would often open their homes to other believers who were passing through their towns. They were therefore contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. The way that we do that here in in this fellowship is uh, you, you actively welcome all the new people that keep coming each Sunday morning. You should always be looking for people you don't know. You should be 
looking to welcome them in. You should be looking to bring them into your inner circle of fellowship, showing them kindness. And again, there's lots of opportunities to do this on Sunday morning, especially in this fellowship, because it seems like there's new, somebody new here every week. And honestly, when you show hospitality, I think you should open your home. I think you should open your home. You should do it often. You should have people in your home often. Share a meal. Say, I can't afford a meal. Well, have a cup of coffee. I'll open a bag of ma- a box of macaroni and cheese. If you don't have a buck for that, I'll give it to you. Then you can have somebody to come in your home and have a meal with them. It doesn't have to be fancy. I've told you this before, and I honestly believe it. Nobody cares if your house is a mess. Oh, I can't have it. Over my house. Nobody cares if your house is a mess because the reality is everybody's house is a mess. We live in our homes, right? We're not, we're not uh, staging them for a picture of, uh, in some kind of high-priced magazine, right? We live in our homes. Nobody cares if your silverware is mismatched. Nobody cares if you have a chip in your plate. They don't care about those kind of things. And we as believers have to stop thinking in that kind of a worldly fashion. And in the compassion and love of Christ, reach out to each other. Get to know each other. Be an encouragement to each other. Love each other practically and tangibly. Contributing to the needs of the saints, pursuing hospitality. And again, the contribution we make doesn't have to be financial. Sometimes sharing life on life, just sometimes being with somebody. Sometimes just being a good listener. You don't have to speak with words of wisdom, just listen. A lot of times people just need somebody that will show them compassion enough to stop and listen to what they have to say. Because how many times have you talked to somebody in this world and you say something to them, they didn't hear a thing you said. They're getting ready to, right? You say something, they're getting ready to launch and they launch off and they never even stop and pause. One, one tongue, two ears. Listen twice as much as you speak. Be quiet, listen. Maybe you learn something of a person's heart and you might find a way that you can be encouragement to them. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. This is what God calls us to do as we live together in the body of Christ. This is the relationship we're to have with each other. All right, our Father in heaven, we're thankful for our time uh, that we've had uh, with uh, you through your word this morning and this evening. And and we're just thankful for your uh, uh, overwhelming kindness to us always through through the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to be diligent, to be obedient, to carry out your commands so that Christ is honored, that you're glorified, that men and women would know that we belong to you because we're different than the fallen world around us. And that major difference is that we love like you have loved us. Thank you for this great day that we have enjoyed. Thank you for the fellowship we're about to uh, enjoy in a few moments as we take a meal together. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.